Welcome back to a new episode of The Talk, the podcast about Nordic entrepreneurship from Nordea Private Banking. I'm Walter Nesland, and today I'm meeting with a man who literally wrote the book on working remotely all the way back in 2013, way before we knew anything about a pandemic. But that's only a sliver of what is on this man's track record. He created the programming framework Ruby on Rails that many famous applications like Shopify, Airbnb, GitHub, Twitch, Kickstarter, and even the original Twitter are built upon. He's also the co-founder and CTO of Basecamp, one of the world's best project management systems. Wait, I'm not, I'm not done. He's also a successful Le Mans racing driver and had his first victory in the famous 24-hour race only nine years after getting his driver's license. What about that? This is the one and only DHH, David Heinemeyer Hansen. You literally wrote the book on working remotely in 2013. Yes. And when we wrote it, we thought, hey, the remote revolution is just around the corner. But uh, it seemed like another seven years had to pass before um, that got thrust upon us all. Yeah. Seven years and a pandemic. Yes. And how do you think it stands the test of time? It's funny because when the pandemic broke out, we got a lot of requests to talk to companies and be on podcasts and so on to talk about remote. And I went back to revisit the book and I found that the first half was essentially now redundant because it was a sales pitch for remote wow. work. It was trying to convince particularly bosses that remote work was a good idea from both sides of the equation. It wasn't just about letting employees live better, more fulfilled, uh, calmer lives. It was also that this was highly relevant for companies that made them more flexible, gave them access to a broader talent market. And one of the chapters was literally that it would provide more resilience. And the resilience examples we used in the book were something like, hey, if you're snowed in or if there's something else going on, you might need to work remotely. And that was then the thing that we all all felt in the pandemic. And then the second part of the book holds up essentially uh, fully, which is all about how to actually do it. And I think that was the thing that when the pandemic hit, took quite a few people by surprise. They thought like, well, I mean, all you have to do is basically install Zoom and I don't know, uh, Slack. If you do those two things, you're ready to work remotely. And this is easy, right? Because we have the tools, we have the technology now. Um, and it's not. Right. There's a lot more to it. And the transition that remote offers companies who really embrace it is far deeper than just picking up a couple of tools and calling it a day. In fact, if you do it like that, if you think that the transition to remote is just installing Zoom and Slack, you're going to end up worse off than you were. And then you might actually end up seeing the experiment as a failure. There's much more to do here. Yeah, I think that a lot of people were talking about it as, you know, a way of getting through the pandemic. It was more like uh, making it not so bad. Uh, but when you were talking about all the benefits, it's actually a much better way of working in general. Yes, I think that that's the both the benefit and the danger with this pandemic is that the pandemic forced every company, certainly every um, technology knowledge company in the world 
to try this experiment. A lot of these companies were resistant to that in the past and thought, yeah, it can't work. If you're not all in front of a whiteboard, if you're not all in front of the water cooler, we can't have the collaboration, we can't have the magic, we can't have the sparks. And then they were forced to run this remote work experiment for a year and they found out actually those were just myths. That was actually not true. Um, Their companies by and large did not halt People were shocked that they could actually get work done and that for a lot of people, the work was better, that life remotely was better. And that was life remotely under a pandemic, which really may sound like it's the same thing as working remotely, but really does not have a lot to do with working remotely under normal times. For example, I've been working remotely for 20 years and all of a sudden I had to work remotely while all the kids were at home and couldn't go to school and we're doing homeschooling and a lot of other stressors were thrust upon the remote work experience that wouldn't be present otherwise. Yet even despite all of that, tons of employees came away thinking, oh, this is so much better. I am never going back to the commute. I'm never going back to the open office. I'm never going back to all those interruptions. I am able to get so much more work done. It is so much more satisfying to do so from the comfort of my own home. I can be far more creative. It allows far more flexibility in the day. This is simply just better. Now, to be fair, not everyone drew that conclusion, right? There are certainly people, particularly if you're an extrovert or you work in certain sectors in sales or otherwise, where you're just you're used to being around a lot of people and that's instrumental to, to your work. Um, versus if you look at the class that I represent, perhaps knowledge workers, a lot of them um, found that the things they really enjoy doing, which is solving problems creatively, was far better done. Once they were at home, they could close the door. They were not in the open office. They were not badgered with all these interruptions that come with traditional office life. And that meant the work was better. They were more productive. They got more done. And those things are true, even more true, if you're doing remote work when you're not in a pandemic. So I think that that's sort of the key hopefully insight that a lot of employees certainly took away. Hopefully their employers also (laughs) take that away is that for a whole class of people, um, the benefits of being able to, to set your own schedule, to work from home with the flexibility that allows to skip the commute have huge benefits to both that individual employee as sort of quality of life, but also to the company because the work output is so much better. Which I guess can be chalked down to a lot of things, but one of them being that you don't have the interruptions, right? That's probably the number one thing I'd say, that uh, the modern office has turned into an interruption factory, particularly the modern office in the form of open plan offices. Those are really the worst. I wrote a whole article about how they're terribly no good and really bad because They look like they are fresh and hip and modern and all the other things. Oh, there's lots of light and we sit next to each other and we can do all this collaboration. And study after study after study have proven that that is simply not true. But these are terrible places to work when you are a creative individual who need long stretches of uninterrupted time to do the problem solving, the creative work that you're there to do. That it doesn't actually work for those things. And then you take those same people remove them from that interruption-filled environment, put them in an environment where they have control over their own time and they can choose not to uh, pay attention to to chat or email or whatever for perhaps hours at the time as they dive deep on the problems that they've been hired to solve. 
And it's like an epiphany. It is like, boom, explosion of the mind. And all of a sudden, you can get things done in a way you never thought was possible. Um, I've talked to a lot of people who, who experience this thing and they go like, do you know what? I could get done in three days what normally would take me two weeks. Because if you get these long chunks, you get three, four, maybe even five hours of uninterrupted time. You can really dive deep, get into the zone. And it's just almost a, it's not even a, a, a difference of degree. It's a different of, difference of kind. Yeah, I, um, I read another one of your books called Rework um, many years ago. It's probably, I don't know, what can it be? 11 years ago that came out? Yes, 2010. Yeah. Uh, I read that when I started my first company, and um, I, I guess I, you know, forgot about it. But it turns out I reread the book now, and a lot of those things were internalized in in not only this company but the other ones I worked with. And that book has really stood the test of time. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, we wrote rework, or we rather we published rework over a decade ago. But actually, we wrote the book over the, a series of of uh, almost ten years. When I started working with Jason in my business partner at Basecamp in the early 2000s, we started building that book. It was just that in we published it in 2010. So I think part of the reason it stood the test of time is that it wasn't written in three months, right? Like it was written over the course of 10 years and it was a compilation of the greatest hits as we've seen them play out. It wasn't a speculative book. I think those are the kinds of books that often date quite quickly when you're trying to predict the future, as you say. What we were doing, were we were looking back and which principles of our organizations had stood the test of time. What were some of the ideas that we had that were still true now and had been true five years in advance? It's funny, we just talked about it and I'm looking here at the, at the index and one of the essays is literally called Interruption is the Enemy of Productivity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that is one of those principles that have remained staple for 20 years of my working career that I went from working in these traditional open plan offices at other companies. I was not a particularly spectacular employee and I chalked that up a lot to that essay to that idea that when I was put in an environment full of interruptions, I performed just like many other people do when they're put in that environment, which is to say not very well at all. And when I then escaped that environment, um, started my own company in essence with Jason around Basecamp and had the opportunity and the power to set how we were going to work, um, that was where I unleashed my creative juices and we could uh, we could sort of go to, to the next level. I'll connect that with one of the other essays that's called Skip the Rockstars. And in tech, we've long had this um, concept of rockstars. Oh, you should hire the best of the best, the A++++ employee. That's how you really make a, a company that's going to succeed, right? I think it's looking at the picture from the entirely wrong perspective. Rather than looking at can we find these individual superstars, it is so much easier to look at your environment and think, can we make this a superstar environment where even just naturally gifted people can can do well, that you don't have to be the 0.1% of people in the world to perform well, that you know what, if you're just in the top 30%, you'll perform spectacularly well. And I think this is one of the true lessons that we've 
seen over 20 years of working at Basecamp is that when you focus on the environment, you can lift all boats in a completely different way. That doesn't mean that every single employee is going to work out, but your batting average will improve massively. Um, if you focus on the environment, which is focusing on things like interruptions and not having that open office on all the ways you work, rather than can we find someone who can thrive in spite of that environment? Um, which I'll mention one other chapter, which is a thing we then try to look for in employees, which is hire managers of one. Rather than hiring people who need extensive management and supervision to be able to make progress, hire people who are self-driven, um, self-managing, and then focus on getting out of their way. Focus on removing obstacles, um, obstacles like those interruptions, like the check-ins, like justifications for how to spend money in ways that make them more productive. All these, the stuff we usually call bureaucratic red tape. If you simply just don't put that up and you trust people, it's amazing what people are capable of. And I think that this example ties very well into this new world we're in with remote uh, work, where one of the key opposition arguments that we got when we got called in to, to talk to people about trying remote work for the first time was, well, what if people will just sit on the couch? They'll just play PlayStation. They'll do their laundry. They'll do all these other things when they're not in the office. I was so sad, actually, to hear that repeated over and over again as the number one objection as to why this wasn't going to work, because it betrayed a fundamental lack of trust in your employees. Why would you hire people if you think that the second you're not looking right at them, they're just going to squander the time? That is such a depressing view of what human relations are like, what people want out of the job. If you think that what people want out of the job is just that they will perform as long as you're staring literally right at them in that office chair, um, I think that's going to contaminate a lot of ways you set up your company versus if you take the position that, you know what, most people, most of the time, they want to do good work. They want to do creative work. This is how they get satisfaction at work. This is how they get higher uh, quality of life in general. So if you can simply set them free and you can extend them that trust, they will return that trust to you in spades. Yeah, I, I, would, say, I would say it's even worse than that because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy when you, when you do it that way. Absolutely, absolutely. Which is the whole point of setting up a, if you want, to call it a rock star environment, right? An uh, environment of trust, an environment of removing those obstacles, an environment of letting managers of one simply getting on with it. Because if you have that fundamental idea of human nature as people want to extend and use their capacities and their competencies, that this is how they derive satisfaction at work, that's also going to create that positive feedback loop, right? Versus if you say not, and I've been... I mean, when I was an employee, I, I saw that over and over again, when management essentially revealed that the trust in us as employees was low, I was like, okay, two can play that game. I, absolutely. I can figure out how to beat the system. Yeah. Whatever you've set up, I can beat the system, which is one of those examples of just like, how naive are you as a manager if you think that just because you have someone sitting in an office chair in an open office that they won't goof off? I spent absolutely weeks on end goofing off in an office chair very successfully while my managers were completely oblivious to the fact. Um, so this Stone Age idea that if you can just maintain line of sight, you can also con maintain control, is just pathetic. 
And I think uh, it's been one of the life missions of my advocacy for a better workplace to dismantle that idea, show that it's utterly false, and show the positive alternative that trust in employees um, really is, is a, a, a bet that'll come back manifold. And I think the school system is even worse in that sense. The school system is really set up that way. So talk about setting expectations for kids, right? So I guess your, your next book should be Rework for Reschool, maybe. Rework for School. Well, it's funny because I now have a, a couple of kids um, who are in school and seeing that up front and close and relating it to my own experience uh, going to school in Denmark and my wife's experience going to school in the U.S. And it's absolutely true. I mean, kids are little humans. <laughs> and as little humans, they respond as all humans do to the expectations and incentives that we set up of them. And I recall um, all of these maladies and pathologies that you see in business today, they are absolutely true in the schools as well. The, the lack of trust, the why am I doing this, right? Can I, can I get a sense of purpose out of this? Can I get a sense of meaning out of this? Do I have meaningful levels of autonomy to do things in the way I want to do it? Or am I simply just doing things because I'm told to do so? Yeah, and I think that you're you're mostly maybe famous for Basecamp and and being this entrepreneur. But I think what you should be famous for is that you have this ability to learn things really fast. It seems like at least when you look from the outside, you've, you've you know you you're an excellent programmer. Obviously, um, you're an entrepreneur. You, you drive Le Mans racing cars. Uh, you're a photographer. I mean, you, you learn all these things. And one of the things you I've heard you talking about is that you need to learn for a specific purpose you know you learn to to do something specific and in school that's not what we do do at all i completely agree that uh, first of all i think what we should also teach in school is this meta learning learning about how to learn because there are absolutely patterns of learning that you can pick up and then you can become good at multiple things right the first thing i learned as sort of a deep skill in that regard was perhaps programming and i kind of just stumbled through it but then after i learned programming i thought you know what there's a pattern to this there's a method to it to how to do it to identify role models to adopt a beginner's mind to um, advance beyond sort of the small pond you're in as soon as you're able to and all these other patterns of learning that you can take to any domain that you would encounter. And when I encountered uh, race car driving, for example, I approached that in a very methodical way that it wasn't just random. I didn't just get in a car and then like, oh, we'll see w what it'll be. I was like, you know what? I'm going to try to do as I did with programming and how to learn it. And I think this idea that um, that the learning has a, has a clear purpose that you can connect to is just intensely important. I tried to learn programming several times before I finally got it. Um, and many of those attempts, attempts failed because I was trying to learn in the abstract rather than learning as a way of acquiring the skills I needed to do what I wanted. And I think that's the thing I've seen with my own kids over and over again is that when they can see the point like, why am I trying to learn this? Which is a lot about project-based learning in, in many cases. Like, um, you're building something. This is why you need to learn the math of how to do it. And uh, maybe you're programming some robots. Or, or this is there's some outcome to it that motivates you because you, you see the path on it. You don't just take it on faith. That like, hey, this is a good thing to learn because in 10 years from now, you'll go to university and then you need blah, 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 blah. Right? No. Um, and... and uh, I've seen it work. So my kids went to a, a project-based school in the United States, and it was just it was so rewarding to see the kids' sort of light bulb just go off. Right? They go like, "Wow, this is 
actually fun. This is interesting, right? And then you almost basically couldn't hold them back. Like my, my oldest son was just so excited to get to school. And I remembered my own experience at school. I'm like, you know what? It wasn't like that. I wasn't just jumping out of bed every morning like, wait, I can't wait to go to school. That wasn't it at all. Um, and it wasn't that because so much of what I was learning, I could not see the point of. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. You know, I, I, I spent five years trying to learn to code in school, and then I made one project on my own after school, and that, that's when I really learned to code immediately because I had to. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's obviously really a true true statement. And I think that if that's one of the principles that you know you you, you need to clear goal to learn for, I think also if you look at also, actually, if you look at Basecamp as a, an example of a product, if you compare it to Asana or something else, I think that what really stands about, out about it is that it's so simple. And it's it's really like any, not, there's no feature there that doesn't really need to be there. And, and, you know, there are a ton of features that could have been there that are just not there. How do you how do you select? It seems like you bring out the big butcher knife or the scalpel rather, maybe, and just cut away everything that's not necessary. How do you go about that process? It's probably one of the hardest things in software development. Everything else that people make, like physical products, they usually have just a physical space to them that will reveal when you've added too much, right? You can literally see it. In software, it's insidious because you can pack in so much junk into a piece of software. And it's not entirely apparent and not even necessarily apparent to users that they will simply... Um, just feel that the software isn't quite right, but they can't put their finger on why it is. I'd say the number one butcher's knife that we've used at Basecamp is that we build software that we want to use. We are building on behalf of users, not on their request. We don't just talk to a bunch of users, ask them what they want, write it all down, and then implement it from one end to the next. No, we'll listen to users partly, and then we will listen to ourselves and then we will um, do what we think is is right in that regard. And I think that is so much easier to do when you're making products that you are a prime user of, right? Um, for both of our software packages, both for Basecamp.com and for our new email system, Hey.com, we built simply software services that we were desperate to use. In fact, Basecamp's origin story is one where we went halfway through development thinking we were just building it for us that it wasn't even going to be a product. We were just building a system for project collaboration because we needed it. We needed something to work with clients. Everything was failing when we were simply using email. And um, therefore, we needed a system. We knew how to build it. We started building it. Halfway through, we realized, you know what? This could be a product. And I found that that approach, if you can, it's just incredibly powerful that you have this a North Star of your own experience and your own wants to guide where you're going. I pity the product developers who have to develop something purely as um, something they're doing for other people and they can't really figure out how to do it. And they have to ask all the time, right? You usually don't end up with good software like that. And the few times we've tried where we've implemented features, not for ourselves, but for someone else, it's kind of ended up half-assed. This is one of the principles that we also have, which is rather build half a product than a half-assed one. Um, you will, especially in software, you'll never be done in terms of what people will ask of you. There will always be a thousand requests that users would come in. Oh, can you make it like this? Can you make it like that? And those requests will all make sense for them individually, but they would 
utterly hate to have the result of us doing all of it. No one wants a product stuffed full of a thousand different requests. You need someone to be an editor. You need someone to make choices about what goes in and what doesn't go in. And I think that's uh, that's something we've really tried to embrace um, and and hold to and, and continue to be part of it. And this is also why over time we've discontinued some products that we found that we were no longer in the target audience for um, and kept the products where we are squarely in the target audience for it. For Basecamp, for example, um, it's the thing that runs our company. Like We literally use Basecamp to build Basecamp and we could not function as a company without that piece of software, which makes us highly motivated to figure out how to do it better. And the same thing with Hey.com. I mean, I live half my work life in Basecamp and the other half I live in email. And I've done that for 25 years. So I have kind of a lot of opinions about how email should work. And it wasn't really until we built our own email system that I had an opportunity to express that and express that particularly as a counter to the predominant systems such as Outlook or Gmail or so forth. So building for yourself and having confidence in your own opinions about how the software should work is huge. There's so many product makers who are simply suffering from a lack of confidence that they think like, oh, I need to constantly validate with users. I need to ask them what they think. No, build the best thing you know how, and then you're going to put it out there and you're going to appeal to, to people who are some degrees like you. And you're just going to have to hope that there's enough people like that um, because there's no other ways of building great software, in my opinion. Yeah, I guess that ties back to the what we talked about with education and school as well, that it, it, you know, it needs to make sense to you in order for you to do great work. Yes. It's so difficult to do something um, at the direction of someone else if you don't truly understand why. Yeah. So this topic I would love to stay on for another hour, but I have to make some time to ask you about your race car driving because how on earth did you come up with that idea to start driving race cars? Well, the funny thing is I didn't actually get my driver's license until I was 25. I lived in Copenhagen until I was 25. And in Copenhagen, you don't need a car. And even if you did need a car, I couldn't afford a car. So it was irrelevant. I got my driver's license at 25 just before I moved to the United States. And then as soon as I landed in the United States, I realized, wow, I need a car. Otherwise, I can't function in the city of Chicago. And then a couple of years later, when I was 27, I sat in my first race car at a racetrack near Chicago. And I only had to do that for half an hour to think, oh, this is good. I want to do this a lot more. And the experience that really unlocked that for me was this notion of flow. So flow is this concept of essentially concentration, creativity, and happiness where you're completely engrossed in an activity to the point where you forget about time and space. And I had found that uh, enjoyment in programming on occasion when everything was just right, I'd be like sitting and programming and all of a sudden two, three hours have passed and it felt like 20 minutes. And you're like, wow, such a rush. I really cracked the nut on a really difficult problem. But it was quite a sporadic experience. And I found that when I put my helmet on and sat in that race car, I could actually turn it on with a key, more or less literally. As soon as the race car was going and I was just flying into that corner with 100 miles an hour, nothing else entered my mind. It was like this state of Zen where you're just one with the car, you're completely engrossed in it. And it was such an intoxicating experience that for a very long time, I simply couldn't get enough of it. It was a, quite a drug, I think actually even in a literal sense, releasing all sorts of hormones and adrenalines and, and um, 
all these other things. And I then found that I could pair that wonderful physical experience of the driving with the ambition that was uh, kindled by my countryman, uh, Tom Christensen. Tom Christensen, I remember watching him starting to win at Le Mans in the, I think he won the first time in 99 or something like that. And then in the early 2000s, he just kept winning Le Mans. And I kept thinking like, wow, that's pretty amazing. Denmark is such a small country, yet it's producing the greatest sports car um, driver, the greatest Le Mans driver of all time. That's incredible. And I think there's just something to the role model aspect of that. It sounds silly. Why, why would it matter whether your role model is of same nationality as you? But it really does. And I had that um, dream kindled in me by Tom Christensen's achievements at Le Mans compared to this physical acceleration of the race car and thinking, do you know what? If I could combine those two things, that would just be wonderful. And it happened to be also at the same time that the company was taking off and there were finances to be able to, to do these things. I mean, race car driving is a ludicrously expensive sport, but thankfully these things were working in tandem. And uh, about Five years after I first sat in a race car, I was on the grid at Le Mans for the first time. Um, and I employed all these tactics we've been talking about of how to learn, how to progress faster, how to jump ahead, even though I, I started very late, right? Most race car drivers were actually really good at it. They started uh, as kids. Um, I had, hadn't even done go-karting. I played a lot of video games, which I actually legitimately do credit with, with some of my advancement in race cars. But... Uh, here I am on the grid at Le Mans in 2012 at the first time, and we end up leading the race for part of the time. It didn't finish that well, but uh, it was just such a explosion of all these things coming together. I was like, ah, I'm in. I gotta, I gotta keep doing that, and I kind of did. I, I ended up doing the 24 hours of Le Mans eight times. Uh, was on the podium half of those times. One with Aston Martin in 2014 in the GTM class, and um, just had a wonderful time. Race car driving is just a truly, for me, uh, unique sport. And it was also then what kind of put the sunset on it. I, I sort of, we'll see if it's permanent or not, but I sort of hung up my helmet last year because I was in a race at Sebring in, in the US, the 12 hours of Sebring. And I kept going into this crazy corner. There's turn one, it's this blind corner. You're flying in there in fourth or fifth gear, max speed. It should be the most accelerating corner in motorsports. And it is. And I flew into that corner thinking about all sorts of other things. It had lost that ability to clear my mind, to enter the state of flow, to enter the state of sin. And after that race, I was like, you know what? If that's gone, I got to try something else. A stronger drug. I guess that's how the mind works, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I, I guess, you know, if you sum, sum it up, what we've been talking about, I think just, you know, having the purpose and having this simplicity and clarity. But I also think there's one more thing that I haven't really heard you mention, I don't think, but I, I, I have this theory that you seem to be excellent at getting out of your own way. I, I think it's, it's a very um, conscious effort to think about how am I spending my time and to look at both myself and others and realize in all the ways we're wasting our times on things that just don't matter. And this is how you fit in so much stuff as it would perhaps appear. I keep getting the question, oh, you must be working crazy hours all the time to be able to... No, I've worked 40 hours less my entire career. Um, but I've spent those 40 hours perhaps quite differently than a lot of other people would. And part of that goes, as we talked about in the beginning, about interruptions. Uh, if you're working a normal knowledge worker job, you might sit at your desk for eight hours, but people do not spend those eight hours equally. 
some people get a lot more out of those eight hours than others. And a lot of that is about the environment, about those interruptions, but also being mindful about that thing. And the same thing with, with learning. You can spend a thousand hours simply repeating the same lesson and you won't really learn that much necessarily. You need to be diligent about how you're learning and how you progress with that learning such that the thousand hours you spend are spent on different lessons and you progress through it as quickly as you can. And I think having that um, mindfulness to it about how fast you can actually go. There's a wonderful essay by Derek Sivers called, uh, I think it's called No Speed Limits. If you've searched Derek Sivers, No Speed Limits, he talks about how he essentially took a master's degree in musical theory in less than half the time. And much of that came from an early teacher he had who essentially said, the standard pace is for chumps. The standard pace is set for the lowest bar possible. If you're not at the lowest bar possible, you can go much quicker. You can learn the material much faster. The default pace is not your pace. You can pick a different pace. And I think I had that instinctually in my mind, even before reading Sivers' article about that, and employed it um, repeatedly. Race car driving is a great example, right? Uh, no driver's license before 25, not sitting in a race car before 27, less than five years later on the grid of Le Mans doing very well. That came from constantly thinking about um, there are no speed limits. I mean, pun intended there, perhaps. Um, but you can progress so much faster through these ranks than perhaps would be prescribed by sort of, hey, this is how the average thing goes, right? Well, I, I don't think we can end this on a better note than that. There are no speed limits. We may even name the episode that. But thank you so much for taking the time out of your, I guess, not so busy schedule then, since <laughs> you don't work less than 40, 40 hours a week. But thank you so much. And it's been an amazing episode, jam-packed full of stuff. And, and um, thank you for, for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Talk. And I'm already looking forward to bringing you the next one because I know we have a really, really cool guest lined up for you. I'm Walter Neslund. This is The Talk from Nordea Private Banking. See you soon.